Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India is a country rich in varieties of foods and tastes, but access to food has changed, bringing options of Western foods of differing nutritional value. With changes in diet comes a change in health and wider implications on the health system of the country. Joining me to discuss issues around health in India and the access and use of medicines are three guests. Dr. Sabrina Gupta from the Department of Public Health at La Trobe University, welcome to you. Thank you. Dr. Jensi Thomas from the Department of Microbiology, Anatomy, Physiology and Pharmacology at La Trobe University, welcome to you. Thank you. And Raul Krishna Puvada, PhD candidate at uh, the above, welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks very much, all of you, for joining me today. And this is a very crowded pod booth, much more crowded than I'm used to be. So thanks very much for your time today. Perhaps the best place to start this, just generally health in India, when you're examining trends of diseases like heart disease and hypertension and obesity, type 2 diabetes, and that sort of thing that is affected by diet. What kind of numbers and trends are you seeing? I can say that so whatever the diseases you just mentioned, we, yeah. we call them as the non-communicable diseases unlike the tuberculosis, uh, respiratory diseases, which can be communicated uh, through the airborne. So these are called non-communicable diseases. As of now, according to uh, WHO, there are uh, 530 million people uh, currently living with uh, non-communicable diseases uh, in India. Mm -hmm. So among those um, diabetes, which is highly prevalent and uh, which is what... uh, my research is focusing on. Yeah, yeah. And is it an increasing trend? Yes, it is an increasing trend in India, particularly with urbanization in India, more people adopting to the Western um, lifestyle in India. Mm. They are moving towards a Western kind of lifestyle. It's it's seeing on a rise at the moment. Mm. Yes. So there's like one in seven at the moment. If you look at the International Diabetes Federation statistics, they say one in seven are living with diabetes in India. But the interesting thing about India is that we've got the double whammy. We've got non-communicable diseases that Rahul mentioned, but we've also got communicable that are also quite high. So TB, things like malaria, or we've got dysentery or diarrheal-related conditions. They're all quite high. And then we're getting these Western urbanized related sort of diseases that are increasing and high as well. Is there a genetic component as well? And is that relevant when you're talking about the India context? Yes, there are genetic components also, but apart from that, even there are uh, highly uh, environmental factors uh, yeah. which can even contributing uh, for these uh, high prevalence of uh, diabetes. Yeah. So, for example, we can say uh, because of uh, high drought uh, conditions and uh, low body mass index. So all these factors are also contributing uh, for uh, high prevalence of diabetes there. Yeah. So there's multiple risk factors. So genetics is one. There's quite different hypothesis on that, you know, there's a particular phenotype that Indians have and that's why it puts them at high risk. But then like what Rahul said, there's other factors. So lifestyle factors, having more access to, you know, richer foods and then other issues like availability of medications and the different types of behaviours that people might have in terms of whether they are adhering to advice, clinical advice. Alternate medications. Alternate, yeah. Mm. And use of traditional medications. 
and not adhering to their prescribed medications. So those are the things that we have seen are leading to the increase in the trend of the type 2 diabetes, particularly in an Indian setting. Okay. To get into those, can we start with how the change in food is affecting things or the, the access to different foods? What is it about Indian foods in particular and Western foods so easy access to a hamburger and those kind of things that are that are coming in and I guess fast foods are becoming more prevalent. Yeah, of course, the accessibility to fast food is also increasing uh, because of a lot of cheese and uh, ready-made frozen fruits. And also the native Indians, they always prefer to eat rice, which is also carbohydrate-rich uh, food. Mm. Native foods and also the Western-influenced foods altogether are contributing to the high prevalence of diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also a part of how lifestyle has changed. Like probably 20 years ago, people had this traditional Indian food, which was high in carbs. But then the lifestyle was such that they had to walk more to, you know, go to work or, you know, transportation was, you know, more sort of walking. But now they have the same high carb food, but then they have access to all the means of transportation, which means that physical activity has gone down, yeah. but the traditional food still remains. So the physical activity is reduced, but the traditional food, which is high carbs, is the same. So that's kind of increased that, you know, trend increasing the type 2 diabetes. And on top of that, access to the processed Western food has added a layer increasing that type 2 diabetes as well. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So urbanization definitely has a role to play. You know, occupation changes, more sedentary sort of roles that people have. So this we've seen more in the middle class and above. Mm. The majority of India who are not as affluent as yet, you know, the rural-urban sort of divide, they have more access to richer foods as well. Even traditional Indian foods are changing in terms of the fats that they have, having more saturated fats, those sorts of things. So, yeah, we've seen a difference in dietary patterns over the last 20 years. 20 years. Mm. Yeah, okay. Mm. Can we talk about then medicine access? There's a divide as well between you know, Western medicines, what's available from the pharmaceutical standpoint, and also traditional medicines and I don't know if there's an overlap. What is the reception to these and the uses of these? That's directly with uh, what your PhD has mm. been focusing on, isn't it, Raul? Yeah. First, I will talk about the accessibility to Western medications. Sure, yeah. So Western medications, basically, for layman understanding, is uh, what our pharmaceutical companies are manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Those we are preferring as Western medications. So the traditional medications are uh, just like herbs or spices, particularly in context to India, we call it as Ayurvedic medications. So, which are naturally derived medications. So, accessibility to Western medications is uh, good there because uh, India is considered as a pharmaceutical hub. A lot has been uh, made there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, Mm -hmm. a lot many generic medications are being manufactured there and it's being exported to worldwide. So, accessibility, urban areas is very good, but in rural areas, it to be explored very much. For example, I can say you one thing about uh, a government scheme called Jan Oshad Medication Scheme. So under this scheme, uh, the government is providing the subsidized medications to mm. the all socioeconomic status of people. In my research, what I understand is the presence of more Jan Oshad medications are focused only in the urban areas, not much in the rural areas. 
so maybe if a government can uh, just focus on uh, improving their access in rural areas can uh, improve the affordability of medications to the rural people as well Mm. Mm. Is there a trust problem when it comes to pharmaceutical medications in different yep. areas? Yes, there there is a definitely a trust problem uh, from the doctors perspectives and even in the pharmacist uh, among themselves also they say that uh, medications which are available in the genoshad scheme mm. I mean the government funded schemes are not equally effective as compared to the branded medications. So because of lack of trust from the doctors and pharmacists it is indirectly affecting the patient's trust as well. Mm. so even they were skeptical uh, because uh, they say that uh, my doctor is not advising me my pharmacist is not giving me so why should i take yeah or there is a fear of side effects Fe- yes yeah. definitely so a lot of patients feel that the western medications might have side effects and this is what we found in rahul's study as well and there's more trust in traditional medications they feel that because they're traditional there'll be fewer side effects from it and so sometimes they might engage in taking traditional medications but then not disclose that to their gp or to their doctor okay. for fear of being you know told off mm-hmm. um we do know that patients have been engaging with traditional remedies traditional medications but then not disclosing it out of fear okay mm. from a rural standpoint i think affordability mm. is an issue as well to access the western medications and then when they are being prescribed the western medications they adhere for a short while and then they feel that it can't be sustained in terms of affordability for some time and then they go off and they start taking the traditional medication so that's one aspect from the rural standpoint yeah we've seen affordability is a issue as well that's come out so what needs to be done or what can be done to address the inadequacies then so there's a few points well the first is that there should be more regulation in terms of pharmaceutical regulation so in india what we found was that often a patient might go to a pharmacist and say you know this is a script the script might be outdated mm. and they would still get the medication or they might go without a prescription as well and still be able to access medication okay, and so then yeah. self medication is increasing or you know is present and that's a risk because then you don't know what medications the patient is taking whether they're adhering or not so you can't monitor that that's one thing is regulating and we need to reinforce that The other is about gaining trust in the Janoshad scheme that Rahul mentioned which is the subsidized medications that rather than branded you can have the generic medications through the Janoshadi so doctors have little trust in the effectiveness of those medications pharmacists they were quite happy with the Janoshad medications as well the ones who were in the community pharmacies apart from increasing the um, regulations uh, and the trust among the doctors i think if patients behavior also play a major role uh, towards their medication adherence mm. in behavior we can even talk about the level of knowledge and the skills uh, they have to take their medications for example uh, in diabetes there are multiple medications involved so they have to schedule each medication they have to remember each medication they have to check their inventory on their own yeah so maybe educating uh, people about their uh, medications and also by providing some opportunities where they can get encouraged to take their medications mm. for example uh, uh, creating a uh, environment or any uh, group activities to perform some physical activities to manage their diet habits also yeah yeah creating a group activities they'll know what type of diabetes diet can be taken for them mm-hmm. and uh, 
what type of skills their caretakers can uh, take uh, to cook separate food for the family members and for the uh, diabetes people so they need not to struggle um, cooking the same food for all of them yes yeah yep okay yeah it sounds like there's a lot that can happen mm. for mm. for education not just around trust in medicine and access to mm. the medicine and mm. and how medicine is being used but around lifestyle That's choices right. yeah i guess the education also comes on the doctors part as well that they need to know how to engage better with their patients how to develop the rapport develop the trust have better communication strategies so that they can have the open dialogue with their patients which is sort of missing at the moment mm. patients not disclosing their behaviors or other factors that are influencing the behaviors why can't they adhere looking at those broader determinants and doctors really need to dig deep into those sort of conversations as well and the other aspect is having integrative medicine so being more open about it so the western medicine is not the one all and be all but being open that that behavior is not going to change patients have been engaging in traditional medicines or with traditional remedies in india for centuries because mm-hmm. ayurveda is like how old is ayurveda that's not going to change perhaps the western model should be more inclusive and we should look at integrative practices mhm very little about this seems to be something that i would only apply to india india doesn't sound unique in any of the problems that it's approaching is that accurate or is is there something that i'm missing in from that aspect no we can see these sort of patterns in other form complementary medicine with chinese, chinese medicine and migrants bring that behavior to where they migrate to as well so what what we've seen with indian migrants here that they often engage with traditional medications as well we've got ayurvedic practitioners here based in melbourne based in australia as well you can buy those medicines here or you can get your family to send them through or when you go overseas because a lot of migrants go back to their home country to visit their family they bring that sort of supply back here to help manage their um chronic conditions like diabetes blood pressure mm. heart conditions those sorts of things so those practices are seen globally yeah and yeah. we have one other student who's looking at kind of similar practices in arabic community as well and mm. we are trying to see if there is a similar there pattern yeah. there yeah so uh, it would be interesting to see what comes out mm. from there the commonalities, commonalities between yeah. different migrant groups here groups. as well and i guess you three w- would have your own experiences of the dietary changes that you go through when you come to australia and the the different access that you've got to foods mm. and mm. I don't know if if this is the experience but I would feel as I'm adjusting to the Australian dietary habits quite gross at the sort of foods that we eat here. We shouldn't be having this conversation right before lunch. I realize <laughs> that. But what kind of things did um, you did you experience so did you find? So in my PhD I explored that. I looked at Indian migrants here in Victoria yeah. and we looked at the dietary practices and so the term we use is acculturation. So when you come to a new place you adjust or you change your practices in line with your host community. Yeah. And so we did see a lot of, you know, Indians their practices change, especially the the subsequent generation. Yeah, yeah, yes. you yeah. know, they want, you know, chicken nuggets for lunch or they want burgers and you know things like that. So slowly that changes the eating patterns. But what was interesting is that it's not a one-way change in dietary behavior, it's two ways. So you probably notice that now being in Melbourne you've got access to a wide variety of different cuisines. Mm. So it's called bi-directional acculturation. And so not only have the migrants changed but the host community has changed that we've got access to a wide variety of foods which compared to 
you know, even 20 years ago, you didn't have that much variety. Yes. And now you can pick and choose every night a different cuisine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I guess that's a situation that has improved as the migrants community grow. Do you see that impacting the health of the community as well, being able to have those options away from, from Western foods? I guess it's about knowing what options are healthy options. Uh, yeah. yeah. Have, giving more education about like Western foods can be healthy too. I mean, you could have a sandwich, you could have soup, you could have salads, you know, Roast. shakes and things like yeah. that, Yeah, which are quite healthy. You don't necessarily need to have the deep fried fast foods. You can look at other options as well. Yeah, I remember in Newcastle, when we were in Newcastle, I remember a lady in Anglican church, she was 95 mm. and I asked her what she had for her diet. And she said she had roast every day for dinner with four colors of veggie. Four colors of veggie, yeah, yeah. She yeah. made sure that she had four colors of veggie that, every day. That was the healthy way to do it. And yeah. that was, and I realized that that was a healthy way to do it. Mm. So that was Western food and mm. that, that can be healthy. Mm. Can't say that Western food is bad or anything. It, it's just what food you choose mm. is what matters. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's what clinicians should be aware about. So, for instance, when I was doing my PhD, I interviewed an Indian background woman. So this woman had diabetes and she went to see a dietitian. And the advice she got from the dietitian was, you need to have meat and, you know, three veggies. veggies. And this woman was like, but that's taking the Indian away from me. I oh. eat rice and curry and you're getting me to change my identity in a mm. way. So the advice really needs to fit with the patient yeah. choice and mm. their background and mm. not be a totally separate cuisine. Mm. Okay, well, to somebody who has high blood pressure, should I be eating more Indian foods? I love Indian food. <laughs> Less, <biased>. salt. <laughs> Less salt. Less salt. Less oh, salt. Yeah, of course. Sure. Because, of course, <laughs> the choices that you make, even in Western food, yeah. the processed food, even if it's Indian food mm-hmm. or Western food, the processed, you know, any mm-hmm. food that has got high salt content in it. It depends on how you cook it, what oils you use, you're not deep frying, you know, having more fresh foods, mm-hmm. fresh sort of vegetables that you can quickly stir fry together and have. And have the spices, the Indian spices, and yeah. that gives you the flavor. Yeah, I can't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> okay, so uh, you three seem to be coming f- at the same sort of problems from very different kind of research areas, if I can put it that way. So talk to you all one at a time okay. about what you're doing directly now. Sabrina, did you want so to start? So I take a more public health sort of perspective, so looking at population health and looking at groups of people and what are things really affecting that community, having that perspective. And also focusing on social determinants of health. So what are the broader factors in society that influence population? So looking at access to medications, affordability, are things available for communities? And, Mm. you know, is it an equitable approach or not? Are clinicians engaging with, you know, patients in a more equitable manner or in a way that's not condescending as such? So, you know, those sorts of things. And so I've got different projects that are broadly around those sort of arenas here. Rahul, for instance, is a pharmacist by background. Yeah, I'm a registered pharmacist back in India. Yeah. So uh, my primary way to do research is uh, just understanding the patient's medication-taking behaviors mm-hmm. and also to educate the patients to take the medications daily mm. and what are the ways we can educate them. We do also interventions when we review the prescriptions, if we find any discrepancies in that, we intervene with the doctors and we suggest them. So if they accept, then there will be a change. If not, the patient will take their medications. And what about you, Jensi? 
So my interest is type 2 diabetes. My passion is working with the cult community, which is culturally and linguistically diverse background. Yeah. People in Australia and also in India, of course. And my interest is how people manage this type 2 diabetes and their self-management, which includes self-medication, of course. Yeah. And as a broader part in the next three to four years, I want to look at how it is affecting their mental health and how you know it leads to depression and anxiety mm. in managing type 2 diabetes. Because I have seen in my own family that type 2 diabetes has led to amputation because of neuropathy and things like that, you know, double amputation and mm. things like that, which is like very severe form of not being able to manage type mm. 2 diabetes, which is really sad. So that's led to a lot of depression and anxiety. So I want to basically explore that arm or that area of um, type 2 diabetes and self-management, seeing how anxiety, and especially amongst the migrant community when they come to new country, and, you know, apart from adjusting into new country, how depression, anxiety, and then managing the disease, the burden of the disease and everything, Mm. You know, changes in the lifestyle bring upon one's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I guess that uh, those sort of changes in a in a person's life doesn't just affect them; it affects their family, family. their community mm. as well. Yeah. yeah, and so you've you've got a uh, wider issues when it comes to uh, education and awareness. Yes. Yes. Because it involves everyone at that point. Yes. Is what you're learning here in the Australian context, is it directly applicable back in India as well? So Rahul's study has been done in India. Done in so India. his yeah. data yeah. collection has been done in India. And as part of the joint PhD scheme that we have, Rahul's been here for the past couple of months. What I did in my PhD, I looked at Indian migrants here. There are common aspects between both cohorts in India and then the Indian migrants here. We do see common aspects. But then again, there's some differences as well because, as Jen C was saying, the migration-related stress, you know, there's other factors that come into play as a migrant that mm. if you're in your home country, you wouldn't have to worry about, like, your social support. You've got your whole system there. You know who your doctor is. You know where to go. You don't need to learn an entire new health system or other systems. You know, how do you know which schools to put your kids in or how do you get a house or rental? All those other factors you don't really have to worry about if you're in your home country. Yeah, so here it's an extra thing to worry, yeah, worry about, about on top of everything else. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, I am now very hungry. So, <laughs> 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 All right, we might uh, leave it there. Thank you all very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Matt, for having us. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.